You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Let's head into the Word today, chapter 13. I will say to this, when I, you know, we planned this series out in May, uh, I didn't realize how ambitious of a task it would be for me to get through these uh, verses here in chapter 13, which I learned that I couldn't, all right? So we're going we're gonna to chop off some of this and put it into next week. I will make a note that we are going to walk into some areas that are difficult, um, not for me. Uh, they are difficult for me. Uh, but we are going to be walking in the area of, of marriage and sexuality. And I just want you to know that we're going to do that very tactfully with honor. But if you're a parent that has convictions uh, about making sure you are educating your kids on those things, I just want you to know that if you want to put your kids in childcare right now, I'm completely okay with that. Um, but let's trans, let's move forward. You know, last week we ended chapter 12, chapter 12, uh, verse 28. Uh, said this to us. It said, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, now worship here indicates a lifestyle. It is, it is a way of living. It's not singing songs. And so if we would reword this passage a, a little bit, we, we might say it this way. Now that we are sure of the promises and the hope that we have in an unshakable kingdom that was given to us by God through faith alone in Christ alone, let our lives then be oriented towards and worthy of receiving this kingdom by faith. The call here is simple. It says that if we have faith, then that faith must show up. Like, if we say that we have faith, then that faith must be evident in our life. And so let me ask you this very pointed question this morning. What does your life look like when faith shows up? What would we notice about it? What would we conclude about the one that you have faith in? Would we make any assumptions about your faith that you have faith in somebody other than yourself? So the conclusion here of Hebrews and the whole weight of Scripture lead us to an understanding that faith has a face to it, that it has to be seen, that it has to be noticed, that it can be pointed to. We, we don't just wear our faith in jewelry or in clothing. We don't just post our faith on social media. We don't just like our faith because the pastor's cool and we like the people. We live our faith. We live our faith. Faith is not a sports team. Faith is not a trend. Faith is not a cause. Faith is living. Faith is effectual because it changes our hearts. It changes our motivations. It changes our actions and our habits as the living God of the universe dwells with us and in us. The gospel writer John has three letters in the New Testament. 
And in one of his letters, his first letter, he writes about the duty of faith. And we'll read this together in 1 John or 1 John chapter 5. It says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves those... Hi. Loves those who have been born of him. So it's what it's saying is if we believe in Christ, we are born of God. We are adopted into the family of God. And if we love God, we will love those who were born alongside of us, the children of God. By this that we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So how do we know if we're loving the children of God, our fellow brothers and sisters? It's not whether they feel like we're loving them. We know that we love them when we obey God and we follow his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments aren't burdensome. And so there's a real necessary connotation here, a difference in understanding that it is, love is not about being felt. Love is about being seen. It's about being noticed. It comes with sacrifice. To have faith means that we follow the one that we have faith in. We follow Christ. We follow his example. We follow his way. We follow his commands. We must choose his way over our way. We must defer our wisdom towards his wisdom. And this becomes our lifelong pursuit through prayer and failing and and, and, and community with people. We are conformed into the image of Christ. And so I ask you again, what does your faith look like? When it shows up, can we see it? Would we notice it? Would your neighbors see it? Because the world is watching, and they notice way more than they think you think they do. Alexander McLaren's this Scottish Baptist minister that wrote this at the turn of the 20th century. He said that the world takes its notions of God from the people who say they belong to God's family. They read, us as a great, they read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us, they only hear about Jesus. In chapter 13, we hear about the face of faith, the action of faith, that we can't just stick to saying that we believe in Christ, that there actually has to be a doing in our faith. This is what faith looks like when it shows up. And this chapter is divided into three aspects. We're going to make it into two today. Like, what does faith look like when it shows up in our fellowship amongst each other? What does faith look like then when it shows up in our worship, our living? Those are the questions that we ask today. And the conclusion that we'll make today is that it's not enough to know about faith. That it's not enough to know about faith. Faith must be displayed or we reveal our lack of faith. And so let's head into chapter 13, but will you pray with me? Father, we come before you, and we believe that this word is your word. And we believe that it's here for us to learn and grow. We believe it's the story about you. It's not a book of morals. It's not a book of therapeutic deism. It's not about us learning how to be successful in our life. It's about learning how to be faithful to you as you are faithful to us. 
And so, Lord, will you use this word by your spirit and make it come alive and bring conviction and gladness in our life. We trust you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this through your precious blood. Amen. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Let brotherly love continue. That's a fantastic verse, simple verse. Let brotherly love continue. Now, the Greek word for brotherly love, if you might have already guessed it, is the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia is what you've probably heard of in some sort of reference to be the city of brotherly love. Now, if you know Philadelphia, you may question that title. But Philadelphia means brotherly love. It's a love between siblings. It's, it means loyalty. It's, it is the opposite of the word phobia. To have a phobia means that you are repelled by something. To have Philadelphia means that you're attracted, that you're drawn to something. It is to be loyal and affectionate and devoted to a people with joint interest and common values. And this kind of love would have been absolutely necessary for the church in the first century. Remember the people that are coming to faith here in Hebrews. Remember that they're coming to faith with enormous cost to their own well-being and their own lives. They have been publicly shamed, many of them, by their own families, disowned. They have become the targets of the government. They've become the, the jeer of society. It has cost them greatly. Now, you contrast that to today, where we as pastors, we have in-depth conversations about how we can be sensitive to people's emotions, how we cannot put too much expectation on people. We don't want to seemingly make Christianity too burdensome. We don't want to require too much. We want to coddle Christianity to the consumer. But it costs those in this day everything everything. They depended on the love of the faithful. They were their brothers and sisters. They were their family. It was a matter of deep importance to them. And continuing in that love was necessary for not just their spiritual well-being, but their physical well-being as all. Well. It's the kind of love that we have towards one another that is seen through sacrifice. It's the kind of love that we hear in the words of our Savior who says, the greatest among you will be your servant. And our author reminds us of continuing in this sort of sacrificial love by saying this in chapter or verse 2 and 3. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. We have to think that the author has a man named Abraham in mind when he's writing this. There's a story in Genesis chapter 18 that records Abraham greeting and then being hospitable to three men that we learn later are angels of the Lord. In a sense, what our author is saying is that you never know. You never know who's going to show up at your doorstep. And so don't refuse them. Oblige them. Be hospitable. Now, traveling in that day is considerably different than it is in our day. Like, there's no online Rolodex of reviews that you can look at your accommodations and the towns that you're ready to travel through. That's not the case in this day. 
Safety would have been of a greater concern in that day than our day. Theft and robbery, assault was, was at a premium. That, and specifically, if you were a believer in Christ. And so now what ends up happening here is pretty incredible. What ends up happening in the early church, in the early centuries, those who follow Christ become safe havens for sojourners and travelers alike. If you are traveling to a distant city, let's use distance as a better story when you say a distant city, and you were going there, if you came to that city and you heard about or somebody told you that there was a Christian in that town, you knew that you could go to their house and you would be warmly received and taken care of. Hospitality to the early church became the primary mode of evangelism. It is how the good news was shared as they were hospitable to strangers along the way. Christians in that day believed greatly that hospitality brought a godly blessing onto their homes and their life. And that hospitality would have been of greater importance to Christians in that day traveling, unsure of who they might encounter and the threats that might be made towards them. Now today, if a stranger is coming to our house, it sends us running to the basement. And we flip off the lights along the way. We, we put our mouths over our crying babies and we promise our kids cookies and treats if they'll just be quiet for a moment. We have video cameras on our porches just to make sure that our visitors know that we're always watching them. And so the question is, is, is that Philadelphia? Or is that phobia? There are lots of good reasons that we can find not to be hospitable. Whether, whether we define hospitable, and I think that it's important that we define it, not just as bringing people into our house, but sending a word of encouragement, a prayer, a meal, our presence, and even inviting people in our home. There are lots of good reasons that we can find for not being hospitable in this day and age. But none that you will find in Scripture. And none that you will hear in the words of Christ who says, whatever you do for the least of these, you have done for me. And look, I understand hospitality like so many other things that we're not good at doing, is very intimidating. We get these grand ideas that we, that we have to be throwing dinner parties for thousands of people and finding hitchhikers along the way and inviting them over for sleepovers. But hospitality can be simple in the small things, as bringing soup to a neighbor who's sick, writing a note of prayer and encouragement, to a fellow believer, showing up to somebody's house just to say hello and I'm thinking about you. This, they aren't grand gestures. They can be small, faithful things that we do for one another. Hospitality doesn't need to be done perfectly. In fact, it's better that you fail at it. It doesn't need to be done perfectly. It just needs to be done. It's how our faith shows up. It's how our faith shows up. It's the fruit that comes from one who understands that we ourselves were once separated, excluded, without hope and without God in the world. But because of Christ Jesus, you and I, who were once far away, enemies of God, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. As Christ has extended himself to us by his blood and through his grace, we must then do to others, especially those 
who are in the house of God. Now, in this day, many of the faithful are being locked up simply because of their belief. Now, we remember, if you remember, we are on the precipice of what is called the great persecution in Rome. It starts under a guy named Nero. It starts around 64 AD. The letters of Hebrew, the letter of Hebrew, is written somewhere between 63 and 64 AD. And so what we know is is that there might be people who are hearing this letter when it was written whose lives are about to be taken from them just months away. Just months away from getting their lives taken from them. Scores of the faithful in this moment are being locked away, but our author reminds them, don't distance yourself from those believers that are being chained for the gospel. Remember them as if you were in prison, he says. And what he means by that. What would you want somebody to do if you were in chains for the gospel in prison? What would you want them to do for you? Now remember, hospitality is in his mind here. That we are to care for those who are in jail. Those whose families are outside, the people in jail, their families outside of jail. Risking our own lives to do that, to do so. And the reasoning that he gives us The reasoning that he gives us is to be so careless in our hospitality is this. He says, since you are in the body as well. Not because I really like that guy. It didn't say because that guy was kind of cool. It didn't say because they have done something pretty neat for you as well. No, what does it say? It says because they were in the same body. Because they're in the body of Christ. And the body of Christ can't afford to lose any of its part. And so we go after them. And we care for them. Now certainly, this means that we extend our sympathetic hearts towards others in jails. Not just those who are believers. And it doesn't just mean that our hospitality is seen in our actions. That we pray earnestly for those who are in chains in the gospel, for the gospel around the world. And there are many who are in chains for the gospel around the world. And we pray for them because we remember that they are worthy and they are our body. They are our brothers and sisters afar. Caring for those who are in chains for the gospel entertaining strangers through hospitality. It's how our faith shows up. And then in verse 4, he says this, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now this, in its context, if you read this whole thing, can feel a little bit out of place, but it is there for a purpose, and its impact is amazing. And I look, I don't have the length of time that I would like to, to, to go through these things. But let me say this very succinctly, that marriage is the unchangeable foundation of human life and flourishing. It is the unchangeable foundation of human life and flourishing. Christopher Ashe write in a, wrote in an essay, he said that marriage exists so that through it, humanity can serve God through children, through faithful intimacy, and through properly ordered sexual relationships. In the scripture, in the very beginning, we learn that God made us in his image. Male and female, he made us. First man, then woman, made us with equal value, equal worth, equally loved, very different. 
We are very different as genders. We are not, we are not the same. And what it means is that together, in our own distinct image, we pursue man and woman oneness, that we become one flesh, which means that marriage is a union that through intimacy and love drives us towards holiness. It's about two people coming together to make a better image, a fuller image of God than we can do by ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't love us if we're not married. That doesn't mean that at all. But it doesn't change that marriage between a man and a woman is the foundational tool that God uses for life and flourishing in the world. And so what that means for us as a believer is that if we're not willing to honor God in this, his most basic and first institution, if we're not willing to let our faith show up in this area, that was made at the inception, the beginning, as the foundation of human life and flourishing, what will we honor him in? What will we honor him in? If we can't trust and obey God in his most basic fundamental tenet, is there anything that we won't compromise on? And so I want to be, look, I want to be crystal clear today. And I know that this is difficult to talk about, and my words might be offensive. I'm not trying to offend. These are the good and right words of Scripture. I want us to understand what it means to dishonor marriage, because it matters. It matters. We dishonor marriage when we abuse our spouse, whether that's emotionally or physically. We dishonor marriage when we commit adultery, whether that is through the physical act or, as Jesus defined it, lust in our own heart. We dishonor marriage when we neglect the one that God has given to us to grow with. We dishonor marriage through divorce. We dishonor marriage when we live together in the same house and are married. We dishonor marriage when we change the definition of marriage from what God made it to be. We dishonor marriage when it becomes about happiness alone and not holiness. We dishonor marriage when we believe it's a cultural concept and not a mandate and gift given to us by God. Now look, friends, I'm not cruel. At least I don't think I am. And I know that there is a brokenness in this life that makes it difficult for us. And I need you to know that I need the same grace extended to me every single day of my life. And the scriptures teach me and they teach you that if we are faithful to confess our sins, that Christ is faithful in forgiving us. Dishonoring God in marriage is not a death sentence. Everything that was meant for evil can be made good. Every sin can reveal the greater glory of God. I just need you to hear me say this today because it's not in our lexicon culturally. This matters. Young people, this matters. Marriage matters. And what did he tell those two who he called into marriage to do, Adam and Eve? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and mal- And what does that mean? That it means that sex from its inception was about reproduction. And I don't know why that feels like a controversial thing to say in our culture today, but sex was designed primarily for reproduction. Now, why was sex pleasurable? Why is it pleasurable? Well, how do you incentivize somebody being fruitful and multiplying? 
You make it pleasurable. And how do you draw people together into greater intimacy and bond together in a oneness that points towards holiness? You make it pleasurable. This is the design of God, that sex lives in the boundaries of marriage between one man and one woman. It's about reproduction. It's about creating deeper bonds of intimacy. It's about becoming one as we grow towards the Lord. And look, God knows how quickly culture gets off when we take this out of context. When we make sex all about pleasure, the world gets off track. And the Lord lets us know that there is a judgment that awaits those outside of Christ whom acted without repentance. Our faith shows up here because we obey God in his most basic desire. And if we're not willing to obey him in this, what will we obey him in? And in verse 5, he goes on to say, Keep your life free from love of money and be contentious with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? To be content is to be absent of coveting. To covet something is to yearn with greed in our hearts after the things of the world, things that bring to us hope, things that bring to us great promise that these things are going to mean comfort and ease and power and status and pleasure. We're called to keep our life free from the love of money because it so easily becomes a substitute God for us. Paul writes this in Philippians 4, and it's a bit of a, I mean, I think if Paul wrote it correctly, he could sell it on the New York's best time as the best book ever. He says that I have the secret to life in some ways. And in Philippians 4, he says, now that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what is the reason that Paul and the author of this book have great contentment in life? It comes from the one who holds them in Christ Jesus. It's the one whom they have their faith in who will never leave or forsake them. And as we progress through chapters 13, he's going to expand on why we so can count on Christ. And so we look at verse 7. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their life, their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from those from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of, the, of lips that acknowledge his name. 
Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I want, I want to come back to this idea about remembering your leaders next week as we bring in a different passage. But let's remember, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ in this day. And they are being elicited by former family members and peers that they once walked with when they walked in devout Judaism. They're, they're being pulled back by diverse and strange teachings about the Old Testament festivals, about the Old Testament food laws. These ceremonies, as our author has brilliantly laid out, that, that have no real power to save, no real power to heal, no real power to forgive or clean, rituals that in fact create a whole lot of false assurance and belief. And why don't they work? Because they don't change our heart. And they can't atone for sin. And he's saying, don't be led back into those practices. And what he wants us to focus on instead is the cross. He says, this is our altar. The cross is our altar. This is where we come to die, to truly live. This is where we, as our Savior says in the Gospel of Matthew, if we want to save our life, we will lose our life. God never wanted their sacrifice. God never wanted the bulls of bloods, or the blood of bulls. What he wanted was a people who loved him, whose hearts were oriented heavenly, who were content to do his will on earth. And then there's this weird language about being outside of the camp. Anytime you see this word outside of the camp in the Old Testament, it, it, it happens a dozen or so times. You'll find them mostly in Leviticus or the book of Numbers. And what typically they mean is, is one of three things. One is that somebody is, is unclean or defiled and they're sent outside of the camp. The second is that they have willfully sinned against the Lord and they are sent outside of the camp to be judged. Sometimes that means that they are stoned to death. And then thirdly, it means a carcass of the atonements of the offerings are to be taken outside of the camp to be there, to, to dissolve, right? to let nature do its course. And so the picture that you, you get is this. It's a picture uh, uh, that, of separation from God, uh, a picture of separation from his people. Uh, we remember Jesus cries out on the cross and quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the loneliness and abandonment of, of the sin bearer outside of the camp. This is why the author of Hebrews emphasized he suffered outside the gate. And he bears in his own body on the cross the due penalty for our sin. And we couldn't survive the full weight of God's wrath on us. Jesus did, and then he was raised from the dead, and in doing so, he bore our penalty due to us. He atoned us, and the author is saying this. He's saying, my friends, this is the key to living the Christian life. You understanding who Jesus is and what he has done for you. But more than that, to remember his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and his love and his faithfulness that Christ displayed on his way to the cross and on the cross, that you remember that that was not some blip of courageous faith that Jesus had, but it is the consistent character of an eternal God. Our author says that Jesus Christ is the same today and he's the same tomorrow and he's the same forever. He is just as faithful to you in this moment as he will be next. 
year. He is just as loving to you today as he will be tomorrow. He's just as full, has paid a full price for our sin today as he will tomorrow. His promises are secure today on earth as they will be in heaven. Jesus isn't like you and me. Like he's not moody. He's not temperamental. He's not passive. And he's not overly burdensome. He's unchanging. And he's unchangeably good. And we can trust him. And so the reason, do you hear it? The reason that we can give of ourselves through brotherly love, the reason that we can be hospitable to strangers, to be considerate of the prisoner, to be faithful in honoring marriage, to be content with what we have, free of our love of money, to not veer into false teachings and strange words, is because we believe that Jesus is better than anything else in life and that he never changes that he's better and he never changes. Like when you believe that Jesus is better, that he's better than any problem that you have, better than any obstacle that might you encounter in life, better than any sin you've committed or sin that's been committed to you, better than any reward that you may earn or status that you may hold, when you believe that Jesus is better than anything that you could find in this world, your faith shows up. Your faith shows up. And here's the challenge that our author gives to us today. That Jesus has called you outside the camp. Jesus is calling you outside of the camp to suffer with him. To experience the same reproach that he did. He is calling us out of the world. The opposite of holiness is worldliness. And this is a costly journey. Faith has a cost. I think we've lost that in our modern culture. But faith has a cost to it. In Matthew 7, it says this, Jesus, our own Savior, says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Listen, we all want shortcuts in life. I want shortcuts in my life. But your faith won't show up if you do. It costs us something. It requires a sacrifice. It requires us doing unnatural things that we're not been to because Jesus is better than anything in our life. It requires a patience and a suffering and a forbearance, not because we're trying to earn God's approval, but as the author has said, because we are grateful for receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, an unshakable kingdom given to us by an unchangeable God. Seek the city that is to come, friends. Seek the city that is to come. God is calling you to come outside of the camp, to live with him by faith. He's calling you out of the world into himself. What does your faith look like when it shows up? Does it cost you anything? Does it require anything of us? Is it grounded in an unshakable kingdom with an unchanging God? You know, maybe your faith over the years have gotten emotional. And it's just lived in your emotions and you're constantly feeling unloved and loved by God. Maybe your faith has become static and you, you just don't know what to do. Maybe your faith has become cold and intellectual. And maybe you're in here today and you're calloused that you even, you can't even hear my words. 
Friends, God is calling us to a faith that shows up. Will you follow outside of the camp? And this is what we know, that where we have failed, where we have failed, and I have failed, where we have failed, we can come and cling to an unchanging God that is rich in mercy, perfect in love, and faithful to forgive us. Friends, will you let the word of God challenge your life today? Because it sure has challenged mine. Let the word of God challenge your hearts through the spirit of Christ, spirit of God.